Welcome to the 2019 Wealth Standard Podcast, Season 1, Capitalism. And now your host, Patrick Donahoe. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast. And I have a really interesting guest today. And we're going to get into his story and what he does for a living as well as something that I became very intrigued with a few years ago. His name is David Collum. He's a professor at Cornell University. However, he writes a yearly economic review and has done so for the last 10 years. You can find it on peakprosperity.com. Chris Martin sends an Adam Taggart's blog, so peakprosperity.com. And I'm really excited to dive into his insight into the economy and insight into our society and what he sees as our future. So David, welcome to the podcast. Hey, glad to be on the second attempt. Yeah, we had the schedule and I did a ton of research just into you know what you wrote about 2018. And you know, I happened to be going to a financial conference up in Whistler right after and Ray Dalio was speaking, Howard Marks was speaking, and there's a number of others. So it really helped me have more refined perspective on what occurred in 2018. So I'm going to talk about a few of those points if that's, uh, if that's okay. Right. But first, what I want to do is maybe dive in just briefly to your story because your economic review of things and you know formal profession are a little bit different. So would you maybe just explain kind of how you came to start writing this annual review? Uh, yeah, well... You know, I didn't pay any attention whatsoever to this stuff. I just did chemistry. And then around 1995, I started to pay some attention. It's a natural thing. You start to develop some savings and you realize that it's starting to matter. My dad and I used to chat about it a lot when I was a kid. And so it was kind of a natural. And then I was a raging bull for a while after that. And then in the late 90s, I started to notice that things were out of whack. And in a fateful moment in July of 98, I decided things were totally out of whack and I dumped half of my equities into cash. And then almost to the day we went into the, that Asian crisis and saw us feeling like a sort of half genius, half idiot. When we're down in the basement, I said, look, if, if this comes back, I'm dumping the rest. So we came back. And so by mid-99, I'd exited equities. I think there's some phenomena where once you go bearish, it's hard to go on bearish again. I think it's Bulls get taught lessons much more dramatically than bears, I think. So I, oddly enough, can't even recreate why. I, by 99, I was I dumped all the equities right down to the last share and, and then was buying gold. And I wouldn't even tell anyone. That it was so embarrassing to buy gold. And finally, I fessed up to a couple of people. And they go, gold? Really? Gold? And I said, yeah. So that paid off well over the next you know 15 years or so. It took two years to not feel like an idiot, though. And I just read more and more and more. And I was at this chat board run by a guy named Doug Nolan. If you haven't had him on, you should. And we would chat. And I wrote some stuff up at the end of the year and said, you know, here's how my year went. Here's what I'm thinking about. And then one day I went viral, kind of left the containment field, went from 200 clicks, because that's how many of us were there, to quite a few thousand. Wow. So, and it turns out one of the guys, a guy named Jesse's Cafe Americam, he had just started the blog and he put it there. And then the next year I wrote it again and it got bigger. And so I think it was in 2008 or nine, I decided to get serious. It was my 30th year of investing. So I called it 30 years of investing from the cheap seats. And I laid it all out. And all of a sudden I started getting emails from people around the globe. The most shocking of which was, was one I got from Einhorn. And he said, this got passed to me and made some comments. Um, from there, every year it got bigger, broader, had a natural sort of growth rate to it. It's to the point it's hard to do now. Last year was about 160 pages, right? Something like that. It's hard to write 160 pages, but it's real hard to do it at the end of the year. Right? That's, that's banging it out. I really go into some sort of lizard brain mode to do it. And it goes to zero hedge, which spreads it around the globe. And, and so uh, I'll take on anything that catches my eye. And so if, if, you know, Antifa catches my eye, write about Antifa, and if, if college finance catches my eye, but there's always section on bonds, valuations, stuff like that. So, yeah, I don't necessarily count it by the pages because I'm reading it on a browser. And so I, I count it by like how skinny that little icon is that you have to drag down. It's quite a bit of work. Right. Uh, but listen, so let me dive into a few things that you said. So the first is you started to see things differently in the late 90s, which gave you a certain perspective, it sounds like, and obviously you acted on it. So maybe talk about where that philosophical base came from and maybe how it's evolved into 
what that paradigm or perspective is you're using now to look at markets, look at political arena, look at the world economy as a whole. Maybe go through that if you would. So I'm not a trader. I go into a position, I usually average in slowly. It can take years. I probably make a trade a year even sometimes, but I'm 100% about valuations. And so what happened to me in 98 is I concluded the valuations were at a point where historically win from that point. And that's still true to this day. Of all the cycles that I've been through, like I was in all bonds starting in 1980. People say, well, that was stupid. I go, well, I was making about 15%. So it wasn't that stupid. When the crash of 87 occurred, I actually was reading about it. So not paying attention, but I realized I should be in equities. And so after the 87 crash, I moved into equities. And then I moved out again in 99. As I said, moved into gold, a lot of cash. I actually had a short position, which is a very tradey thing for me to do. And I've done it twice. I will probably never do that again. It worked both times, but I know better now, right? Winning doesn't mean you're not an idiot. And so the big, big mistake I made was, and I don't blame myself. Every decision I make goes through the filter of if it doesn't work, will you forgive yourself? I started buying in 09, but I failed to buy not out of fear, but out of greed. And so I started buying, but I said that what a lot of people don't know is we got down to approximately historic fair value in 09. They, they think we're in some basement somewhere. We were nowhere near a basement. I, I document that exhaustively, especially in 18. And I was just positive that we would have to blow out a lot more. And so I remember Doug Cliggett saying, you know, I'll be buying at this level and then it'll drop to this level and I'll be really bullish and at this level, I'll wish I'd save my money, right? That was sort of the, the mode I was in. And, and when it jumped away from me, I said, nah, this is 1931. We're going back down again. And what I didn't see coming, nobody saw the levels of intervention coming. I know hundreds of people who saw that the mortgage crisis coming, hundreds and hundreds personally. I can't find a single person who could point me to a single article where they said, before this is over, there will be trillions of dollars inserted into this. Can't find that article anywhere. So I totally failed to catch this roid rage created by central banks. So I've been largely not catching it, treading a lot of water and gold. And now I'm just waiting for the next downswing. If my worldview is correct, it's going to be a nasty one because they've blown up a gigantic bubble in both bond and stocks. And so when those two start to blow up, I don't want to be in the splash zone. So let me hit out a couple of things. I definitely want to address the point that you just that you just made. So when you had this perspective of things in 09 and then you saw the initial intervention, you know, mostly and then it kind of gravitated into QE how markets would respond well, in the short term and the long term. First and foremost, I joined the club that turned out to be big and, and wrong, that inflation would take hold. And it hasn't. Not, certainly, there's people who say it's there, but it's not of the magnitude we thought. So, And gold is really well coming out of that bottom. So it wasn't until around 2012, if I remember, 13, where gold started to pay dearly for not being right. And so that's the thing I blew. I didn't listen enough to guys like Lacey Hunt, Mish, Mike Shedlock, that they were deflationists. I bought the banker's line that a determined central banker can create inflation. And Hunt and Shedlock are the two that I happen to remember well saying, we are going to have deflation. It didn't sit with me. And I think they're correct now. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things in hindsight, you know, everything makes sense as to this move and what it caused. But yeah, looking at foresight, when the move is actually taking place and seeing what impact it's going to have, you know, sometimes it's impossible because it could go a number of different directions. But looking at that was 09 and the world has changed quite a bit. How has your perspective changed in regards to your philosophy? Obviously, valuations no longer make much sense at all. And you've had a lot of very creative corporate finance going on, which has continued to grow certain sectors. But ultimately, there are signs that there could be a correction there's also signs that there might not, but maybe talk through just what your experiences have been since 2009 and how your philosophy and perspective have been refined. Actually, it hasn't changed too much in the sense that of all the bubbles, this one is the one that seems most nonsensical to me because I've said this probably a million times. Every previous bubble, there was a good plot line. There was a good story. So whether it was 1929, whether it was 1999, whether it was the 1960s, 
where you could always say, here's this revolutionary moment in history and things are rocking and, and this is why it's exciting. And even the South Sea bubble, they all have a story. The story of this particular bubble is the Fed won't let it let us down. And that's a stupid story, because first of all, I think they're incompetent most of the time, able to be competent in the short term, but not able to stop the tides in the long term and and be a cause of a lot of pain when they don't. So I severely blame the Fed for 09, right? To me, they're at ground zero for 09. It wasn't just crazy consumers. It was, it was loose monetary policy. How do, you, um, how do you address those that are like, well, you know, the world would have gone to crap and we would have crumbled if the Fed didn't intervene? I hear that quite a bit. Well, I can live with that idea as long as those people acknowledge that, A, the Fed caused it. So to give the Fed yeah. credit, is a reach, right? This is like Ted Bundy is quit killing people. And then the second thing that I would want them to acknowledge before we'd be on the same page is, is that they've been excessive since 09. So I think it really went off the cliff during Yellen's term as Fed chair. She had opportunities to start getting things back to normal and she failed. I think all the excessive QEs, it's possible they can see disasters that they're just so afraid of. But we now have a Fed who's afraid of inflation, afraid of recessions. Deflation and recessions, yeah. Recession. And the Fed used to be the root cause of recessions, and now they're trying to avoid them at all costs. I think when the next one comes, it's going to be really bleak. We're going to, we have massive corporate debt. And we have, and this I can't even fathom, our pension funds are all underfunded at the top of a bubble. Yeah. How do you get an underfunded pension? And they're all underfunded. And so... So the next brutal correction is going to send them so far into the basement that they're going to break. And they're going to break right on schedule for the boomers trying to retire. And I think it's just going to be very unpleasant. If the next recession comes and goes and it was garden variety, I'm just wrong. I don't know what to say, but I think we're going to be in fetal position on the next one. You know, I've dedicated this season last couple months to the theme of capitalism. And you look at free market capitalism and what that philosophy entails and the principles I would say a lot of economists have understood for a while and then what it's really become. But looking at how that word is used today, there really has never been a true free market capitalistic system. And so that's where you have intervention, particularly by central banks, and how that does not allow for certain elements of capitalism, mainly failure, to occur. And it essentially creates unintended consequences. And now it's been creating unintended consequences for the better part of 100 years. And so you look at just where we're at right now, and I would say fundamentally, when you look at a free market, we would have crashed and banks would have been out of business. A lot of other businesses would have folded, but that would have given rise in theory, right, to a more efficient monetary system potentially. And so we can't really know. It's all just speculation. But you look now at what you just mentioned, the fundamentals there, when you start to manipulate behavior you're essentially just deferring the problem to the future. Now, who knows what that's going to be? But I look at some of the same concerns that you have. The unintended consequences are monstrous. And so maybe talk about a few of the big ones. You mentioned pensions. You mentioned the corporate bond market, which is just massive. Maybe get into those a few points, which you know, talk about extensively in your review. But maybe talk about a couple of those main unintended consequences that a lot of this monetary theory has created? Well, this year I went completely back to the wall on valuations. So I, I presented approximately 20 different metrics of market valuations, and they all point to pretty much the same story. And that is regression to historical mean will be a 50% correction, right? I believe this time a 50% correction, things will break. I, I don't know what, right? These are very chaotic systems that you can't predict. You can predict it'll be a mess, though, I think. And now what we have is the appearance of politics getting into the game. And so I think what at least some of your listeners have been paying attention to probably is this modern monetary theory. Yep. I've tried to get my brain around it. It looks like total nonsense to me. In theory, it's fine. In practice, it looks like a disaster. I think it's emerged now in the context of a budget deficit that's running 7 or 8% a year. We know when the GDP is running at 2.5% over 10 years and the budget deficit's running at 7 or 8% that you're in a death spiral unless you turn it around. The markets ran 300% while the GDP ran 30%. So 
So to the extent that everyone I know thinks over time they track, that's just not a good situation. That's the famous Buffett indicator, right? And so I think what we're going to see in the 2020 election, politicians always promise free stuff. But I think you will be sort of breathless with the level of free stuff being offered in 2020. I think that goofballs like AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, oh, yeah. pulling the Democrats so far left that they're now socialists. I never would have thought there'd be people who were devout socialists in, in competition for high office. And I think the rallying cry for the Democrats is going to be Wall Street got theirs in 09. It's now time for us to get ours. And I think that that is going to be a catastrophic spark to cause problems that are almost unimaginable. I don't know how to go there. If readers are interested, search Justice Democrats. Go on online, search Justice Democrats. You'll find out there's actually a coup going on within the Democratic Party. And it's real. I've seen videos of Ocasio-Cortez talking about how she got put into power and stuff like that. It's a very strange thing. New guard of super liberals, super left wing. They're not trying to beat the Republicans. They're trying to beat the Democrats. Uh -huh. There's a whole bunch of them. This is surreal stuff. And I wouldn't have believed it. But the first time I saw a presentation of it, there was videos attached showing people talking about it from the past. And what's happening is there's a powerful group who's attempting to find Democrats in districts for which a Republican will never win, right? There's plenty of those, in which the people in the district are not happy with their representatives. And they're trying to knock the Democrats out at the primary level. So Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, is a de facto spokesperson for the Democratic Party right now, right? She's got the microphone. She's got it. It's, it's open mic night. And she got elected with 15,000 votes in the primary. That's where she got elected in the primary because she wasn't going to lose the election. She's going to lose the primary if she could. And this Omar woman, I can't remember her whole name. There's about four of these freshman Democrats. And this is the real part that people have to do a little deep diving. They were recruited by a casting call. They literally put out a call. Ocasio-Cortez on film, my eyes, I saw it, said her brother submitted her name. And somehow it's like they're putting together a boy band or something, <laughs> right? They're putting together the, the bangles. And the plan is to just start knocking off Democrats. And so if you watch carefully, I think you'll see. And, and I was wondering why Ocasio-Cortez was hammering Democrats. I mean, she's there talks about that because she's not against the Republicans. Yeah. Yeah. against the Democrats. This political move has massive implications to free market economics. Well, it's interesting because it's the first that I've heard of some of the points that you're talking about. And, you know, I look at what has essentially been a huge influx of capital, which I would say created kind of the big bull run from uh, 09 until even late 2018. And it makes sense that you have a lot of economists at the helm there. You have Wall Street, which for better, or for worse, they know how to manage money. They know how to make money and they understand the implications of losing money. And you're essentially saying that now the influx isn't going to go into the hands of Wall Street. It's going to go into the hands of those that really don't understand even the fundamentals of, of things. Yeah. My tax guy told me I'm going to pay 10000 more in taxes this year because of the new tax laws. And I didn't see this coming. And here's the interesting thing. If that's true, and if other people are soft, maybe I'm unique. I've got a kind of an expensive house. So you've got a big real estate. And you get the property and state tax you know, caps. You know. Right. But if that's true... April 15th is not going to deliver checks to people. And all of a sudden, there's going to be a complete sort of unexpected slowdown. And that's not going to help. We mention debt all the time. Student debt's destroying a generation. Corporate debt's nuts. Corporate debt's in a massive bubble. And if you start toppling corporate debt structures, that goes straight to the economy. Right? Yeah, one of the stats in your, in your report that surprised me was that the majority of the Russell 2000 was in junk status. Yeah, something like Somehow 50% of the debt, I think it's even worse than that. I think it's 50% of the debt in the S&P is right above junk. And when you slip the junk, you, you, you set up triggers all over the credit markets because there's plenty of holders of debt that by statute, by legality, can't hold junk. Yeah. Right? 
General Electric's piece of garbage is going around the drain, right? Deutsche Bank's going around the drain. There's a lot of companies that are not bringing enough revenue to pay their debt service. Everything, in essence, intertwined and connected, even other countries. And so whatever is going to be that trigger that starts to release the dominoes, who knows? But they've been building. I think pensions are obviously catastrophic because of the interest that they're using as part of their actuarial models, which are just not realistic. Uh, but then you add the unfunded liabilities. It's been surprising to me because we're in Salt Lake, which has become Goldman Sachs is now like it's their biggest office in the world is in Salt Lake. Uh, but you also have, I can't remember what percentage, but a pretty relatively high percentage of startups and, and getting to certain capitalization levels, uh, but they don't make any money, right? They operate based on being able to receive their different rounds of funding. And so you look at how business is being created these days, and it's hurt me and we have to operate on a profit. And I've had developers just poached for 40, 50% more than I was paying them. I can't afford that because the other companies are able to get funding. They bid up the prices of labor. Anyway, that you see signals everywhere. But with me, I tended to be in your camp back in 2009, 2010. And I didn't see what was coming. And I look at, is there something else on the horizon that we don't see coming? And I don't know if it's the technological innovation that could potentially impact efficiencies and prices in a deflationary manner. I don't know. But I look at what you've gone through. And that's why it was just 160 pages is incredible research, just really not stating talking points, but also the actual proof behind it. And uh, so I definitely recommend anyone who's listening to this that has had some level of insight to definitely check out David's 2018 report. David, looking at these concerns that you just brought to the table, I haven't necessarily looked at the impact that, what do you call it again? The justice? Democrats. Justice Democrats. It's like Marvel comic. Politico picked up on this. Justice Democrats Politico. And you'll find articles about this movement. I mean, who knows what they'll do? That, that's just one of these risks that, that has appeared. But something like 65% of the population is signing off on the idea of socialism now. I think what we're doing, back in the 20s and 30s, society had just gone through this unbelievable industrial revolution, right? And society was trying to figure out how an industrial world should be organized. And so there were the central planner types, and these were the guys who were at risk of being called Trotsky types. And at the time, it was a credible idea that you needed good central control of things in this world that we had entered. And then there's the free market guys who said, no, 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 free market capitalism is the way to go. And one can make the argument that FDR was about a big compromise where the free market guys basically said, no. Let us do our thing and we'll put safety nets underneath you, right? And so you get the welfare state beginning. Civilized society does protect weak people at some level, right? So the welfare state shouldn't be viewed as so pejorative. It gets out of control, but but it's not a bad idea, I don't think. And I think we're entering a period where we're going to be looking ahead to a new grand compromise because somehow... Capitalism hasn't done itself a service, right? There's aspects, I've been fighting for weeks now about share buybacks and how corrosive they are and stuff like that. I've concluded people don't even understand what they do and don't do. The most fundamental level of what a share buyback is, people don't understand. So, so we're going to have come to Jesus moments. Well, it time. was illegal. I mean, share buyback was illegal, but obviously Glass-Steagall, that came into place obviously after the Great Depression, but now it's down as well. What I've discovered in the months that I've been doing this, this theme is that we've never had capitalism. There's capitalistic ideas and principles. There's never really been a system because the corporate buyback isn't capitalism. I mean, it, may, it might be, but at the same time, it's like, it, it should presuppose that every other aspect of the economy is free market, which it's not, right? Because interest rates were manipulated, which allowed for the corporate world to capitalize on low interest rates and finance buybacks. Right. And it doesn't necessarily create productivity in the company. It just keeps their valuations at the same level or higher. Right. Yeah, that's right. One of the ways to look at it is if you have an economy that's based on goods and services, then all boats rise. Right. There's an economy that develops new ways to do things and people's boats rise at different rates, but all boats rise. Right. That we brought prosperity to ourselves by being fairly free market oriented. The monetary policy has turned our economy from one of providing goods and services to one of moving money. So if you turn on CNBC, you you don't hear about capitalism, you hear about finance. 
And as the economy morphs from goods and services to finance, you morph to a zero-sum gain economy because no one's making it. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, yes, there are. You go, well, okay, what are the biggies? Is Netflix the replacement for U.S. Steel? Is Amazon even the replacement for Standard Oil? General Electric being replaced by what? Facebook? These are stupid ideas. And so now as the economy becomes about moving money, not goods and services, the little guy's getting killed. And that's the wealth inequality problem. We will solve the problem not by finding better ways to distribute wealth. We're going to solve it. And I'm not saying it's a solution. This is what we're going to do. We're going to try to redistribute wealth. And redistributing wealth doesn't work well. So, so I think a really efficient economy has a way of distributing wealth such that, that it's fair. It's not necessarily benign, but it's fair. And so the workers get their share. They're not as skilled as maybe the the upper guys who spent years in college and whatever and doing smart things, but they get their share. And by pricing capital so cheaply, they basically priced labor out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And so now it is cheaper for McDonald's to get robots than to hire people, right? And we're going to get there. And I am a little worried Change is always good, right? People worried about what are we going to do with the buggy whip makers with cars that say, well, they'll find a way. We'll figure that out. But change can also be so quick that it causes problems, right? If you add hot water to an ice cube, it cracks, right? If you let it warm, it slowly melts. Things adjust. But if you, if you get too far from equilibrium, you get avalanches, earthquakes, explosions. These are big displacements from equilibrium. We're turning to equilibrium. But what's the central mechanism for that balance or what should it be? Well, first and foremost, absolutely the missed opportunity is for the Fed to quit worrying about recessions and let the downturns go, right? Let the downturns keep shaking out the losers and and leaving room for the winners. When I was a kid, my dad was a contractor and he worked in one area and he went into cement pumping. It was this big monster truck that pumped it up seven floors. And I said, why did you go into cement pumping? He said, I mean, besides, I think I can make money. I go, yeah, why that one? And what he said was, this must have been like 1970 or something. He said, because the truck costs, I think it was 350000 which back then was a ton of money. And he says, I can compete with any other contractor who has the capital to buy that truck. We can both be on the playing field at the same time. He says, what I can't compete with is wildcatters who come in, undercut my prices, put us both out of business simultaneously. So restricted capital, making capital precious, keeps the meatballs out of the game. It keeps shaking out the losers and keeps the winners. It keeps the honest businessmen, the efficient businessmen in the game. And right now we've got all these businesses that would not exist if we weren't giving them credit. And that's the problem. But that's also what they consider as the solution, right? Where a lot of these technologies are ultimately to make life cheaper, make life better, make life more efficient, solve the world's electricity issues and the food issues, right? So both sides of the argument, and that's what I'm saying is like, what's in the middle balancing it all out? And like you said about water, right? You go too cold, something happens. You go too warm, something happens. Well, who's there, who, who's there doing the temperature? Who's there like dialing the temperature? Right? It's the rate of change. Yeah. And so every once in a while, you have a small earthquake. You never get a big one. Right? And if you go for 100 years in California without a serious earthquake, you're about to get your ass kicked. Right? Yeah. So, so this is where I blame the Fed. They kept trying to avoid the corrective measures that would have kept it from getting too far from equilibrium. By the way, you asked me originally how to get into this. The field I'm in, in chemistry, Turns out to be really complicated. Very few people want to go near it. And I was told I, I couldn't get funded and things like that. All sorts of contrarian things drove me into this field. Uh, what I discovered is absolutely everything that people thought they knew was wrong, almost to the letter, was wrong. We've gone through so many project after project. Where not only was the answers to the questions wrong, the questions themselves were wrong. Huh. So for 35 years, this has been my life. What it's taught me is experts can be dead wrong. So that plus being an academic sort of somehow gives me, I have a few superpowers, none of which are what you'd normally think of. I'm not that smart. I have the ability to figure out what I don't have to do and not doing it. That's a superpower. The other thing I have the ability to do is look at a bunch of experts who all tell me something and say, you're full of crap. 
very, very few people have, I don't know if it's arrogance or the ability to resist the, the tractor beam, but I can look at a dozen central bankers and say, this is what we should do. And I go, I don't think so. And that's the special kind of crazy, right? You know, I'm supposed to debate one of the vice presidents of one of the Federal Reserves in three weeks. That's a special kind of crazy. It's scheduled now, I'm told, on a podcast. So is it one of the board members? It's a guy in St. Louis. Okay. And it'll be on Twitter, I guarantee you. Probably will be less of a debate. We're going to talk about modern monetary theory, as we talked about before. Yeah. He invited himself to my podcast, curiously enough. He chimed in and said, what about both of us? I go, really? So the guy I was going to do the podcast, at first, I don't think he knew who he was. I said, he's the vice president. You got to say yes to this one. And we're going to get on and discuss it. I think he entertains the idea of modern monetary theory, which I think is in practice, as I said, preposterous. I can explain it in theory, but I can't explain it in practice. Mm -hmm. And he's an open-minded guy. And so I don't think we're going to clash. And I also know that I can't let it clash because it's not fair to him. Like I could say, why did the Fed do this? In public, he can't respond to certain questions. I can say, isn't Greenspan an idiot? What's he going to say, right? And so I really am going to have to be aware of the fact that I have to approach this differently. Going back to like my original question, now I know where a lot of your philosophy is, has come from, right? Where you have stated theories, right? Because human beings all have that element of fallibility, right? Where we form certain opinions, but it's based on certain amounts of information, but not all information. I don't know if anyone has all information, but you look at the world in that uh, capacity and you realize that there's a tremendous amount of trust for people that are considered so-called experts. And I, I think you put yourself in a political role. You put yourself in part of the Federal Reserve. I mean, suddenly the layers of power really create this godlike mentality, but it also creates this incredible fear of being wrong. I think that's really where a lot of the issues start because you know there could be positive results that are because of current monetary theory uh, and what they're trying to do. At the same time, no, they never address the consequences and there's always going to be consequences so anyway, I, I look at, man, I can't wait for that debate, but what a platform to try to have a discussion with an insider at the Federal Reserve on MMT, which is an honor, actually. Yeah. yeah, it is. And at the same time, it's like modern monetary theory. It's like calling the question just monetary theory in general and what it does, because right now it doesn't make sense because all we're doing, and maybe you can explain this briefly, but from what I understand, the difference is it's creation of money that's not monetized, right? There's no underlying asset, right? Where if the Fed prints money, they buy a mortgage or they buy a bond or they buy a treasury. I mean, they, they buy something. This buys nothing. <laughs> so, so modern monetary theory basically, I think, says that, and there's so many layers to this onion, but one of the premises is that deficits don't matter, right? Yeah, there's no debt. I mean, you're never going to have debt. So you could just print your way out of a deficit, right? Well, so the real fundamental flaw in it is the idea, we talked about this about 20 years ago. It's actually about 100 years old, but a bunch of us talked about it about 20 years ago where we said, look, in theory, the government doesn't have to tax this at all. They can just spend money sort of created with help from the central bank if needed. And what happens is the cost of government shows up as inflation and it, it erodes your spending power as a tax. Now, there's a lot of problems with this, one of which is that inflation is called a hidden tax. And I kind of want the taxes to be in plain sight so we understand what it is we're being taxed. But the real problem is, is that that model, they make this assertion that taxes are to control the money supply. So the claim they make is that you spend the money and then you tax to pull that money back. And it becomes a chicken and the egg if you're not careful. And some say, hey, we're already doing this, so why do you care? But also this dismissal of government spending is really rampant in that community. And their idea is to curb inflation is, is up to Congress to curb spending. When was the last time you saw them do that? Never. That's the impractice part that goes nuts. So what, when was the last time a guy stood up and said, look, I think we're going to have an inflation problem. So as your senator, I'm proposing a bill that will cut you off, right? That's not going to happen. So it's a really stupid idea. Once in a while, they say something stupendously stupid. And so for a while, it can sound rational. Then all of a sudden, they say something that's so mind-bogglingly stupid. I go, oh, man, you guys are just making it up now. So it's getting a lot of negative press. So right now, in theory, the attacks against you know, Larry Summers and Krugman, even Krugman of all people, are fighting it. But it has shown up 
at the moment when our deficits look unsustainable, and along comes this theory, it's 100 years old, that says deficits don't matter, don't worry about it. What a nice, just some time. So wonder what the, well, that, obviously it's not uh, just a coincidence. Well, this has been fascinating. Selfishly, I've, I've wanted to kind of see what your insight is and your philosophy around how you view things. Hopefully the listeners got something out of it. In the past, we've talked extensively about a lot of the issues that we've just briefly touched on. But these are issues that are results, right? And those results have a cause. And the cause is really where to start, not trying to, to change the results by themselves. And so I look at just really what the Federal Reserve has done since 1913 and, and what's happened since then. You can see a lot of positive things, but also from a fundamental standpoint, you can see a lot of negative things. But right now we're at unprecedented levels when it comes to the, the signals of our markets and the levels that we're at, whether it's debt or otherwise. And it's scary. At the same time, it's always that question in the back of my mind, what, what am I not seeing? Okay, what do I don't know that I don't know? Which that's always been a variable, that X variable that's part of the equation that, no, that very few people can ever really understand until it actually happens. Well, there were a couple of vets. So when Powell showed up, people who thought they knew Powell, this chairman of FOMC, people said he's different. He doesn't care about the markets. He'll do what's right and the markets be damned. And if they have to correct, they have to correct. And then two events occurred that were just mind boggling to the point that those who are like-minded, let us say, were breathless. And one was, I think it was December 24th, when the markets had corrected 16%. After a 300% run, they corrected 16%. And all of a sudden, Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin, who's most famous for his wife. Called that emergency meeting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All the president's working group on capital. And we're going, dude, that, that's not even a blip. What are you doing? Now, it's possible something was going on in the credit markets under the surface. I picked up little murmur, murmurs about that. But then in January, Powell found himself on stage with Yellen and Bernanke. And the, the huge mistake he made was to be on that stage because you do not speak as the Fed chair. You don't speak extemporaneously on stage. And he muttered the idea that the Fed was ready to support the markets. And all of a sudden, that was the birth of the Fed, what they call it. The idea that the Fed will not let the markets drop. And so what it did, in my opinion, was it gave, and those two events created this massive January rally that we've witnessed. Yep. But what it did is it showed, I think, a lot of serious players that the Fed is weak. Well, because they capitulate. And it's one of those things where I heard the same thing as far as Powell is concerned. But imagine the pressure he's under. And that's where everybody caves at a certain degree of pressure. Well, imagine if the generals in World War II couldn't imagine dropping guys on Omaha Beach, right? How would that work, right? So if you're in that position, you can't be weak. If you can't make the tough calls, you don't get to be there. But, but he is there and he blew it. And, and he looks really weak. And then he did a 60 Minutes episode. Yeah, I, I was like, why is he? Yeah, I didn't know he was doing the, the one with, I did with, with Yellen and, and, and Bernanke. But I, yeah, I knew about the 60 Minutes one. And he wasn't explicitly lying, but it was a massive dose of pips. It was a massive dose of highly engineered statements. Like, like when they asked about wealth inequality, which everyone I know says, look, you got to point at the Fed on that one. That's the, that's the whole financializing the economy in spades. And when they mentioned that to him, he said, oh, that's not under our jurisdiction, which is technically not a lie. But since he caused it. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> big. Tip. Well, that's a big thing. I mean, obviously, we can go on for hours like this. But that's one thing that's scary is that at the top levels, there's very little velocity, right? At the lower levels, that's where all the velocity is. And that's, I would say, the main catalyst for high inflation. But right now, it's kind of kept at bay because it's at very high levels. Uh, but looking at, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting Powell's involvement and what the cause of that is. But in the end, it's like, you know, the Fed, if they're the temperature creator, right, that we've been referring to, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where the markets have rebounded because that was not what they were priced for at the end of last year. And the indicators say we're close to a recession now. I yeah. We were close. I think it was in 2015. I said, I think a recession's coming. People laughed it. And then by the end of the year, you could see that we were just flittering around sort of zero percent. Well, and the yield curve, you know, briefly inverted last week, too. Right. And so it's like there are lots of signs. Well, let's maybe end with this. First off, like, what do you because I'm assuming you don't just like sit down and take December off and write 160 pages about things. Like, what are you using during the year keep, you know, to keep a pulse on? What's going on? Like, what are what feeds you following? What podcasts? What uh, newsletters? Like, what are you typically paying attention to? 
Well, Twitter is a gold mine. It's a big mine, mine sink. And so if you can manage your Twitter feed better than me, you're a better person. I happen to like Zero Hedge. You got to have a filter, but I think Zero Hedge is great. And I've had people tell me I'm an idiot for following Zero Hedge. Well, 700 of my followers follow Zero Hedge. 700 people I follow follow Zero Hedge. Everyone I know who I think is a big-brained Wall Street genius type, they all follow Zero Hedge. And so I, I would say Zero Hedge is indispensable. Um, you can't believe everything because they get stuff wrong. They're calling it. They're way ahead of people. You know, I think between those two, the stuff I can pick up on the fly off Twitter is really pretty extraordinary. Who are you you following on Twitter specifically? Well, I've got a list of about 170 people who are on a list. I've got a much larger follower list, but but I use my cold list. And the guys that I watch all the time, I watch Hussman and Felder. My favorite person is Rudy Havenstein. He's just a, a hoot and a half. He's the comic of Twitter. There are certain journalists I keep track of. Lisa Bramovich is, I think, very good. And Kate Long knows the mini bond market well. It's just Chris Whalen. There's people coming across the feed all the time. Josh Crum, Luke Roman. These are all people who, the junkies of financial Twitter, everyone knows their names, right? We're all following the same people. And they're entertaining guys. They don't all agree, but they're out there battling and posting and if you're on Twitter and you're there to share cooking recipes, it's a colossal waste of time. But, you know, I've been in the politics a lot. So when the Mueller report got summarized, I was just having a field day for, for about a day where I was pointing out that uh, 500,000 articles written on Russian collusion, that actually is the number in two years. Gosh. Were people who were completely and utterly clueless. And the media completely and utterly clueless. And and who knows about obstruction? Who knows about that? But the fact of the matter is they just blew it. The Democrats blew it. They played their car. They believe their own press. It's just a, so I, it was just hysterical to me. It's just like the Covington MAGA hat boy. You know, they completely screwed that up. They completely screwed up. Every couple of months, they completely screw up a story. And then you go out on Twitter and you see just stupid stuff. You go, wow, I can't, I can't believe those journalists are missing it that badly. So it's kind of a field. It's like a huge cocktail party where everyone's drunk as a pig and we're all <laughs> When's the debate? What's the date and time for that? Sometime in April. It, oh, so you haven't had, you haven't, you have nothing definitive. Uh, if you pay attention to my feed, you know, I can guarantee you it's going to be posted a few times. And, okay. and if you personally want to send me an email, uh, you know, once I, I'll get it to you. I don't think it'll be that exciting. I think it'd be kind of arcane. I think I'm kind of playing the, the straight man for, for this other guy. Well, I don't want to name because it hasn't happened yet. But I think I'll be sort of poking. He'll be explaining. I'll be going, yeah, but what about this, right? So I, I think that'll likely be the tenor. And then there's the podcaster himself. And I don't know what his role is. I, I you know, and I like who's the guy. The, who's the podcaster? Or are you not allowed to say that either? Zach Abram. Okay. So we'll see what happens. It shouldn't be combative in my opinion. It should be a nice discussion. Yeah, when you have that type of... Uh, contention that never leads to a productive dialogue. So I'm excited for you to do that. That should be an incredible experience. And we'll definitely let our audience know so that they can chime in or at least listen in. Right. Okay. Well, David, listen, this has been an awesome discussion. Thanks for taking the time. Is the best way for people to follow you uh, just Twitter or are there other other ways? Well, if you search my name, the top links are no longer chemistry. (laughs) (laughs) David B. Column is my Twitter feed. And so you can find me there. Anyone who passes the minimum IQ test can find me because I'm in the Department of Chemistry at Cornell. And if armed with Google, that is not enough information. You really need help. <laughs> I get emails from people, some, some rather stunning ones sometimes where I go, whoa, I didn't expect that one. And so I'm the Paris Hilton Finance now, right? Famous, <laughs> famous, I guess. Hopefully it's not that far. I thoroughly enjoyed reading through your material. I mean, thank you for the research that you do. I know it's making a difference and hopefully with the combined efforts of others that when things start to get a little haywire, that there's enough influence to make sure that the decision at the bottom is uh, is a good one. Well, so I've never been on Twitter through a downturn. Mm. So that's going to be fun because my Twitter experience has all been during this big 10 year. Because you've been bearing during one of the biggest, you know, the runs. And it's a beauty. 
who's calling you an idiot in public, right? And I've been chastised. One guy said semi-complimentarily, he said, people listen to you, you should be more careful. I said, if they're listening to me, they're in trouble already. So, (laughs) Well, there are a lot of kind of freedom fighters out there that understand a lot of fundamental principles and basics and just see the nonsense in what's going on. I see why. It's just typically that theory isn't really valued until a correction ensues because hindsight one of the best teachers. Yeah, I'll throw out a lob pitch for your readers of the many things that I've sort of focused on and said, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. This should shock some. The Roth IRA is a bad idea. Hmm. And it's actually relative to a regular IRA. It has got a mathematical hole in it that's a monster. And again, I'm looking at this and I figured out and then I go, why haven't people figured this out? I don't know. What is the, what's the hole specifically? Well, the whole is that if you get taxed the same at the beginning or at the end, which is the Roth versus the regular, yeah, the results are the same. There's it's fourth grade math. It, it, oh yeah, compounding's irrelevant. It is, if oh, you yeah. compound it the same, you get taxed twenty percent up front or twenty percent at the end. You get the penny, the same amount. Yeah. The problem is, is that the Roth IRA you voluntarily put in money, pay the tax on money at the marginal tax rate, right? So you're taking the top sliver off like 35% tax rate for some people, you're voluntarily paying that high tax rate. Whereas in the regular, when you pull it out, it comes out over the effective tax rate, comes out over all the brackets. And the effective tax rate uses around 12 to 15% lower. But what if it's higher in the future? Well, it could be higher, but that's a bet no one knows. All I know is you're giving up 12 to 15% right up front based on that logic. And so I think I once asked them, why do they market the Roth? He said, well, you're selling Corvettes, you sell the red one, right? Yeah, it's the bet, right? It's the bet of what you pay now versus the bet of what you pay in the future. And right. Yeah, the math, if it's the same rate, you're paying the same. Yeah, you can make a bet of not paying now, but then if taxes go up in the future, AOC, 70%. <laughs> if it gets to 70, but you're still paying the effective tax rate at the end. How do they calculate the effective tax rate in that regard? There's actually calculators online that do it. Yeah, so you just put all the margins in and it creates the effective one. Yeah, okay. It comes out starting at zero and then five and goes up to 35. But no one's effective tax rate is ever higher than their marginal by definition. Hmm. So they would have to drive the tax rate so high that the effective tax rate would soar. And that's almost impossible. Or change the tax code to tax withdrawals higher. I don't know. Even when the marginal rate was up 80, 90 back in the early 60s, the effective rate was way, way, way lower. Interesting. Yeah. Well, there's trillions and trillions of dollars in uh, qualified money. And so, you know, it just comes down to at what rate you pull it out in the future. That's the determining factor. Right. Well, David, thanks again. This has been really insightful. And again, appreciate your work. And we'll make sure that we get the word out, increase your listeners a little bit, and hopefully... As things start to manifest and a lot of the stuff that's been deferred for a good part of 10 years, that there's enough influence out there to the culprits or those that actually created the whole thing are held accountable. They won't be. You can always try. You can always try. The system will just break and then they'll blame something else, right? Those guys will be long retired and Alan Greenspan, he's on his last leg. Although his reputation has dropped big. So oh, totally. His legacy finally got uncovered. And so oh, yeah. He said he cares he's gotten justice. Oh, yeah. Have you seen that new documentary? Supposedly, there's this like, it's on my list. It was done recently, but it was relative to the bailouts. It's done by HBO, but relative to bailouts and what's occurred uh, since then as far as what Greenspan's reputation. Uh, it also has some interviews with Bernanke, too, supposedly. Have you seen that? I can't remember what the name is, but. Oh, no. Right. It's, it's not ringing a bell. It just apparently barely came out. HBO, I'll send you a link. But yeah, I think because of where we're at as far as social media, as far as information and how quickly it transfers, I think accountability is a lot more probable these days, especially at those levels. But who knows? And, and if the next recession, we get through it without a big deal, then I would say that I called it wrong. I'll be doing a mea culpa if we get through another one. But it's one of those things where it's like it's an artificial manipulation, right? If it was a free market, there's going to be a correction. There has to be. It's regression to the mean. Oh. But, but if you have manipulation, then it just papers over the problem. But I think you run out of manipulation. I think at some point you get to the end of the rope, and I think the next one's going to do it. And has it started? Actually, I'm on record saying I think it started in December. Hmm. With just that little correction? No, I think when the NBER announces when the recession started, 
I'm on record saying I think it started in December. Hmm. Gas, just watching auto sales and stuff like that. And when they start, they start ever so imperceivably, right? You don't notice it. There was a poll done in 1991. They asked 51 economists whether there would be a recession that year. And all 51 said no. And there was. Not only was there, but when the poll was done, we were in it. And so that shows you how hard it is to detect when it started. It's like, when did the avalanche start, right? You notice when it finished, right? (laughs) Well, this one, like you said, it's like, there are so many fundamental issues. And if it goes, it's going to go. Is it interesting? The talk by Howard Marks, and I'm not sure if you've read his new book that came out end of last year. I haven't um, read a lot of Howard Marks stuff. And his recent one really, you know, he hits upon the emotional state of things, right? The feeling state of things collectively, obviously, right? But there's this fundamental variable of fear or greed or passiveness, right? And what that has to do with market cycle. So the book's Mastering the Market Cycle. Uh, right. But I think that's interesting because right now, I would say Twitter's probably giving you a good pulse of what the sentiment is out there. Bimodal. It really is bimodal. You got the Yahoo saying everything's wonderful. And then you got the bear saying, I think it's starting. wonder if that conflict is. I haven't read read them. Anyway, well, I'm excited to see what happens. I mean, for those that are in the know, for those that are prepared to make certain decisions, then I think it's going to be a great opportunity. But there's going to be a lot of people that pay a dear price for it. Right. That is true. David, again, thanks for your time. We'll definitely have to chat again. You bet. Okay. Take care. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. My book, the Amazon bestseller, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, a financial strategy to reignite the American dream, is completely changing the way people look at saving, wealth, and retirement. Want a sneak peek? Head on over to www.headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast for a free audio, and text download of my favorite chapter. Again, that's headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,